Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. My name is Kelsey Williams, and today I am joined by Carl Alexander, vocalist, freelancer, and effervescent human being. <laughs> Thank you for being here, Carl. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me to be here. I'm excited. Absolutely. Me too. You are a graduate of Northwestern University, Bean and School of Music, Go Cats. Yes. <laughs> and a Chicago-based freelancer. You're also a wonderful photographer. You did my headshots. Yes, I love photography. I actually was a, kind of like a weird fashion photographer for a while. Um, it, it kept me <laughs> what going. What made it weird? <laughs> um, it was just kind of like, you know, a self-made business. And it, I didn't expect it to go the direction it did. But, it, like, I started working with agencies and I was getting requests from all around the world and I was like well wow. I can't leave I'm in grad school like I can't go to Brazil <laughs> or or Russia oh, you know Carl, I had no idea about that yeah that was kind of like the thing I kept on the low because I was just like I don't want this to get any bigger than it is right now I need to finish grad school this is just extra money to keep me from like being hungry or <laughs> you know <laughs> the things we do in grad school Yep, very fair. Well, you definitely, I had a really great time um, when you did my headshots and you have a really special way of making people feel comfortable and just making them smile. It was awesome. You, I'm glad you enjoyed the process. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Carl, you have a very unique voice type. Could you fill our listeners in on what it means to be a countertenor? Yes. So, um, as you mentioned, I am a countertenor. Um, that usually means I'm a high male voice. Uh, if you want to look at it through a historical lens, uh, we're kind of like the middle ground uh, for, you know, between women's voices and male voices. And in the in history, we, we weren't really using women's voices, especially in church. And so we had men um, and also little boys who could sing really, really high and would sing the soprano alto parts. So in the modern version of that, I'm somewhere between a tenor and a mezzo or a soprano. Uh, for me personally, my voice is really high and very big for my my fa. Uh, so it's very strange when people listen to me. And so um, even now, as I've been rolling out more material and videos, people are like, you're not a countertenor. Like, I don't know what to call you, but you're not a countertenor. Like, your voice sits really high, but also you, when you sing low, it sounds very manly and... You know, so basically, yeah. you just have an incredible range. Yes, too many octaves to count. It's somewhere between three and a half and four. Um, wow, it's fun to play with when you're like doing voice acting or um, even when you're coming to a new piece because you can play with so many different colors. Uh, yes. But it is incredibly frustrating when you're learning new music or when you're in a lesson and your teacher plays something in an octave and you're just like. But, but you meant me to sing there, right? And they're like, no, 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 no. Do the octave higher. Uh, <laughs> I jokingly call it octave dysplasia. It's like, I'll sing you whatever <laughs> octave I thought I heard you play. And if you're mad about it, we'll figure it out later. Um, we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah. <laughs> you're getting much better about that nowadays. Oh, my goodness. So did you always know that you wanted to be a singer? How did how'd you get started in this field? So I did not always know I wanted to be a singer. Um my history with singing has been very complicated. Um, honestly, I thought I was going to be a journalist or a poet. I always wrote oh, wow. poems when I was little, even in like second grade, first grade. I'd write poems for people and give it to them for like Christmas. Um, 
And I kept doing that as I got older. And I still have poetry that I write now. Um, Even thought about writing a book of poetry at one point. Um, But then I, strangely enough, college, went to Morehouse College, which is an all-male HBCU. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. attended that school um, for his undergrad, as well as Spike Lee, Samuel L. Jackson. Um, The the list of great human beings keeps going on. Um, And so I, I was a brass player. I played euphonium. I was actually trying to get into the music school. Right. Come on, brass players. Yeah. Go brass. Represent. <laughs> I was trying to get into the music school um, because I, I didn't get to go to Atlanta to audition. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to be an English major and then I'll audition the first semester. So I'm going to this music school, trying to find a practice room to do my etudes and like practice my audition music. And I'm singing and fingering as I go just to make sure that it was like very lyrical. And the Glee Club stopped me in the hallway because they had auditions and they were like, you're joining. We need you. Like, they stopped you because they heard you singing your practicing. Yes. They were like, what are you wow. singing? And I'm like, oh, I'm just doing my A2. I'm trying to wait for a practice room. Um, at the time, Morehouse only had like two or three practice rooms. <laughs> so I actually Whoa. had to wait for a practice room. Um, <laughs> oh, and so I'm just no. singing in the hallway, just like going at it, you know, by myself, not with my instrument. Um, so, and also the Glee Club at Morehouse is 105, well, 100 and, well, geez, 109 years now? It's, it's, it's a pretty old institution, uh, at the wow. school. Um, and they only, they don't only sing, like, Glee, it's not like a Glee Club, not pop music. Um, they usually sing classical music as well as, uh, African-American music. And they tour and they do a record, they do a lot of different things. So, I didn't know what it was. This- this is not your everyday Glee Club. This was no. legit. Right. This is like a <laughs> legit ensemble that represented the school, brought in a lot of money for the school. Um, so I was like, yeah. sure, like I'm not, I can't get a practice for a couple hours. I'll audition. Because they like were nagging me. So I auditioned. I got in. I ended up loving it. I spent all my time in the music school. Um, and then I auditioned. Uh, the audition was horrible. <laughs> I didn't know anything about voice. I'd only been in choir my senior year of high school. Um, So I sang one song as a baritone, not knowing that I could (laughs) have changed the key. And of course that sucked because I had no low voice. Um, And then I sang one song as a tenor and they're like, oh, this is actually nice. So they patted me on the back and said, you're in, but then left me with the joke of like, well, you know, when you come back from break, don't become a bass. Because at that point I had sung all the the ranges (laughs) Lo and behold, I became a kind of a sopranist <laughs> when I came back um, and I got thrown into the world of music and I, I never came back as a singer. I, I, I really, really loved it. Um, and here I am now just like doing a lot of crazy different things I never would have thought, you know, five or seven years ago or however many years ago I would have been doing this. So it's been a pleasure. Yeah. What are some of those things, these things that you couldn't have ever thought that you'd be doing five years ago what what are you up to that's so like wholesome when you look back <laughs> I would never have thought that I'd be one educating young minds um I work as an educator at Nazareth High School which is great I love it um I actually teach acapella music and I also teach about gospel music and I am a private voice teacher teaching classical and musical theater um but beyond that, I, I never would have thought that I'd be premiering new works by imaginative composers. I never thought I'd be championing, uh, championing uh, 
new music by Black composers, um, and also just premiering all these works with orchestra and getting the opportunities to perform around the area. And I just, yeah, I just, there's been countless new uh, opportunities to make music and not be limited. Um, That's something I always feared when I was in undergrad and also in grad school, you know, especially just as a classical musician, period. There are so many boxes and and check marks we got to check off um, to be considered real musicians or even to be considered as a, a musician of value to, to, mm-hmm. to pivot them in positions where their, their voice can be powerful and heard and amplified. Um, and I've always been a kind of against the grain when it comes to that. I've always been the one to be like, well, no, or not participate in trying to fill those check marks just do what I, what I do best and be myself. Um, and I, luckily people have found value in that and they, they love that about me as an artist and, and that just continues to provide more opportunities for me. So I found that, that very important, very special. Um, it's hard to do as an artist and I'm, I'm just happy that people believe in my craft enough uh, to provide those opportunities. Wow. I, I'm happy for you. I mean, that, that is really wonderful. And also, it serves as such a great reminder. Like, it's okay, people, to rely on your strengths. Mm-hmm. It will get you places. Yes. That was sure. really great. Speaking of that being difficult as an artist, uh, it's, it's obvious that making a career as classical musicians, as you said, is it can be difficult. But especially as a vocalist, that comes with a different set of challenges. Instrumentalists are, we're all kind of familiar with this idea that you might freelance a little post-school. A lot of people have the typical dream of, you know, auditioning for a regular orchestral position. You get in, you're good. Uh, Finding a steady and consistent job in one area is incredibly rare especially as a vocalist. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) What is it like trying to freelance as a vocalist, but even more specifically in your case as a countertenor? It is strange. That is like the shortest way to say it, but like in more detail, um, freelancing as a singer is a necessary evil um, that, and it's not necessarily evil. Well, no, it's evil. But there, there are its positives, too, that push us to be greater advocates for ourselves as artists. So I, I find that part valuable. Um, but it's something that we have to do from day one. Um, I feel like I've always had to do it since I left undergrad. Um, because once I got to grad school, the experience was that I did not get opportunity to grow Um in the school, even though that's what like most of us go to grad school for, you know, to get the opportunity to get the repertoire, to learn um, and get those experience so we can step into the professional world and, and be great. Um, I was freelancing from day one <laughs> when I got to Northwestern. Um, and so that puts you in a position where you have to work, especially as a singer, like you have your nine to five during the day and then you do everything else at night and you rehearse to your butt is off at these different companies or these for these different concerts, these different recitals, collaborate in different ways. So that way you're positioning yourself um, to be seen by uh, larger companies, larger organizations to get more of those opportunities. Um, and I, I've been very, very, very lucky to not have to go down the auditioning route. Um, a lot of my friends are always auditioning 
uh, whatever, Chautauqua or Glimmerglass, or all of them are doing their auditions. They're over here just going at it, filling out applications, recording videos, trying to do, and I'm like not a part of that process. Um, that's part of one of the difficulties of being a countertenor in this world of freelancing is that there are very limited opportunities as countertenors. People are not doing shows with countertenors in them very much uh, because, you know, those aren't the shows that are selling. They need to do their regular canon of, you know, Figaro, all their Mozart. and Yeah, you know, li- limited in the sense of the standard repertoire stuff, right? Yes, yeah. for sure. And then when they want to do something outside the box and new and modern, um, there may be one countertenor role, right? But you have all the countertenors in the U.S. and abroad fighting for this one role, not to mention that expectations of countertenors, especially vocally, um, are not exactly me. <laughs> the countertenors tend to be, especially the ones who are getting hired, are skinny white men who are smaller, yep. who can play these characters that can be, you know, that tend to lean to the side of children, that te- tend to lead the side of, of younger people, and also tend to represent the other and, you know, the out of this world. Whereas, you know, I am the other. I am the out of this world. Why can't voices like mine have that opportunity too? Um, as I've learned, sadly, through my experience in Northwestern, it's about what people can see on stage, especially as our world, as classical musicians who are singers, is trying to translate to the stage of uh, movie theaters or to be on film. Um, it's what's appealing to the eye. And so if your body, <laughs> which then inhabits a character, is larger than life or is large, period, um, or is different from what people are expecting, um, some some directors and some folk will feel that it can take people out of the story. Um, and I, I feel, I, I personally don't believe that that's true. If anything, it just gives people a different lens in which to view the story um, or, or a different lens in which to communicate and work through uh, the narrative that is in those kind of shows. Um, so as a result, a lot of my work has been concert work um, and recording and working with choral groups. Uh, because those are avenues and spaces in which my body and the element, all the elements of who I am as a black queer man doesn't have to um, necessarily cause dissonance on stage or with a director. Um, I'm willing to push past that <laughs> in audition spaces. Um, I just haven't found the right avenue yet to do that. Yeah. Wow. Instrumentalists, I... <laughs> I'm realizing how lucky I am in the sense that really I haven't, first of all, I have an instrument that you you kind of hide behind, right? Mm-hmm. So you're not just out there in plain sight. And in the symphonic world, the the image has hardly anything to do with it. Obviously, you know, everyone's in their concert black and they want it to look uniform, but that just, that ain't it in, right. the, in the vocal world. It is just a totally different ball game. Exactly, and I I love that you're bringing to our attention this this idea of image image, and how it causes dissonance. As a black classical musician, you you know there's image for everybody, but being a black classical musician, you face even more challenges than what most people might think, right? Exactly. 
I'm curious, when was the first time you noticed you were treated differently as a person of color in the classical music field? Um, as I, I kind of hinted a little earlier, but definitely I really noticed when I attended, started attending Northwestern, um, I was safeguarded at Morehouse. I, I had people who looked mm-hmm. like me teaching me the craft from the get-go and also establishing the importance of music by people who looked like me. Um, so I never felt divorced from the content. I never felt divorced from the the poetry, the text, the music, because I knew other people who looked like me in, in years past and in current day were doing the same thing, and they were finding ways to see themselves in, in this artistry. Um, so I really poured myself into that. And as I came to Northwestern, um, you know, from the opportunities of being on stage not really being available, um, for me in my particular voice, or when I was asked to be on stage, being put off the side of the stage so I can't be seen as much, or, you know, those things uh, I started to notice. And so I, I, at one point, just stopped auditioning altogether, and I think that's kind of what started this trend of not really auditioning. Um, And then I also noticed that, like, I was the only person doing music by people who look like me at the school. Um... And so then I became a kind of a personal thing of just like, well, I need to challenge my singer friends to take music by people who look like me seriously. So every time I stood in front of someone or had the opportunity to, I tried to make sure that I was performing music through a lens that was black. And so very often in our seminars, I was singing music by black composers. So they would learn and get to hear this kind of music and, and value it and see that it, it's beautiful. It also has its difficulties and intricacies. The text is beautiful. I can do this, you know, even if I'm not a black musician. Um, I would coach my friends on spirituals. I started, um, I even applied a black lens to any aria I was doing so, um, so that people could see all of me and what I was uh, presenting at the school. Um, but I noticed that wasn't really entirely valued or reflected in the work we were doing. Um, so that, that caused a lot of frustration, but luckily I was uh, welcomed and supported by the black community in Chicago through the Chicago Music Association, which is a part of NAM, National Association of Negro Musicians. Um, they, they kind of snatched me up in a competition and then kept supporting me by giving me chances to be, uh, perform um, and highlighting me and, and speaking of me and, and giving me more opportunities to perform in the area. Um, and that on itself kind of gave me more work uh, with non-black musicians and like people see my value as, you know, a person who can sing a little bit of Baroque music or sing new music and, and premiere things and craft, uh, new images and new ideas. Um, so yeah. Wow. So many of our institutions are just so stuck in tradition and it, I, I cannot imagine what you feel like it it's got to just feel like you constantly are banging your head against the wall like I'm here I'm trying I am showing you and what are you gonna do mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. wow so you kind of touched on this but if there's one thing you could pick what frustrates you the most about the classical music field as a person of color well I kind of tried to like sum it up in my brain a little bit and I the best way one short sentence is that for me classical music has always seemed like a longevity game that benefits white men Mm -hmm. um and 
as a result, no matter how much input I may have, no much, no matter how much crafting I may do um, to change the narrative, the people who are supporting this kind of music, um, it still tends to be in the power and possession of funds from white men, older white men. Um, so as a result, like when I tried to create a project called The Voice Project, um, which essentially was me researching black uh, composers or composers of, Af- of the African diaspora from all over the world. Um, I, I tried to highlight 15 of them where we were promoting new uh, chamber works and collaborative works that they wrote for my voice and other instruments. Um, it was going very well, but the funding wasn't there, so we weren't able to continue that project and continue to highlight those other voices. Um, and so those opportunities get snuffed out the narratives get snuffed out because we we have this also this game the game of longevity can apply even to black musicians you know who's been in the game the longest and now they're finally getting the chime to shine uh like uh Tyshawn Sori whose compositions are coming to the forefront but homeboy's been a great jazz musician and composer uh for years and so now people are starting to recognize his work um and then also, you know, as a classical singer, you know, Lawrence Brownlee's been around for a while. Um, Russell Thomas has been around for a while. Um, who else? Angel Blue's been around for a while and just is now getting her recognition um, and getting consistent work with companies. Uh, so it is a frustrating as a young musician uh, trying to break in and have your narratives, your voice, your authenticity as an artist be recognized. Um, and also then trying to get put in a position of power to where you can continue to promote these narratives and these marginalized voices um, and get them put to the forefront. Because I think that's what people want to hear right now. They, they want to see and hear themselves in all avenues and in all spaces. Um, I think that shift of power needs to occur uh, at some point where we stop putting our funding into the consistent repertoire that we always do that you always seems to draw people in and let's start getting into some of these newer stories that look more like you and me and the conflicts we're seeing today um and start giving power to and credence to those stories because people are just going to continue to consume what we perpetuate as important yep we are the perpetuators that's for sure wow Um, that incredibly well said and Frankly, I'm, I'm feeling a bit inspired right now. <laughs> it's so great to talk with you. There is no doubt in my mind that it has, it's got to be tiresome to mm. have to continuously make this fight and seemingly on your own, right? Um, when you find yourselves in these situations, you know, over and over again, what keeps you going? What keeps you coming back to the music? Mm. Well, there are several things. Um, and there was someone, I, I'm, I'm someone, I was listening to a podcast the other day <laughs> and someone reminded me that it's important for us to restore ourselves. Um, I like that they use the word restore because that can show up in different ways, whether it's meditation and meditation can be a walk. Meditation can be seeing your room be quiet. Meditation can be reading, you know, um, or just having levels of mindfulness for yourself, creating those boundaries for yourself to say, hey, you know what? I need to pause for a second. Um, But the ways in which I restore myself, um, I listen to a lot of music. 
um, whether it be classical music or, you know, Allie and Chloe or, you know, whatever <laughs> is on my Spotify at the moment, which is tends to be crazy. Like literally it could be someone singing in German and then all of a sudden it's, um, uh, best friend by Sweetie and, <laughs> and Doja Cat. Oh. It could be literally anything, but I do try to listen to, uh, as much music as possible to just remind me of the joys of like liking music because that's the only reason why we do this in the first place we all love music and the reason why we got into this is because we found something beautiful about it we enjoyed making it um so it's that helpful reminder and then um a concept from a book called love and rage by uh lama rod owens a black buddhist um he talks about mindfulness or meditation in a way of um making room or calling on your ancestors and one way in which i do that is I remember my grandmother, because um, she also, she just passed at the beginning of, uh, like, literally right when COVID started. Her funeral was two days before the lockdown oh, in Chicago. No. Um, so I, I remember her. Um, and I think about her all the time. And I also think about, like, past great Black classical artists, so, like, who were successful and did great things. So, like, my favorite, I think most people who know me really well know I love Jesse Norman. And we'll like play just you know recording every day and like cry and <laughs> like oh. <laughs> that is that is who I want to be when it comes to being an artist. She just she really studied her craft. She really made beautiful choices. Her voice also was completely signature. No one else sounded like her. Um, she could be crazy loud and then she also could be incredibly quiet and, and intense um, and purposeful. I just think she just really was a strong artist and really meant every word and every note that she uh, let out of her body. Um, and so I always strive for that. And I'm always trying to create um, an opportunity for this voice, for my voice to be heard, even with my small audience, um, as a way to restore myself. I'm always trying to be at least um, a little vocal and transparent and authentic in what I feel like what just happened on January 6th. I mean, Mm -hmm. that was a lot to take in way too much for any human being. Um, but when I saw that news, I was just completely done and I had to just, you know, just for a minute to be like, I'm not surprised that this happened, but when I come back to you as an artist and I say that I feel this way, I need you not to discount it. I need you to see what I'm seeing. I need you to be aware of how I'm processing this. And so I I take the social media times to let that, those moments happen. But then I also craft uh, new pieces or new uh, projects in order to channel some of those things. So people may have a a chance to, you know, look in and peer and see in my heart a little bit. That's the hardest part of restoring myself is being open and vulnerable because uh, very often yeah. when we want to heal, we shut off. Mm-hmm. And I'm really good at that. I tell you that I can go in my little corner and read for hours. Don't talk to me. I put my headphones yep. on. Um, <laughs> but this new element for me that I've been really working on over the summer um, is, yes, I can have that moment and be selfish. But I need to, in order to create the change in my community and with my friends and the people that I'm connected to and give myself to I also need to actually freely give of myself um, and be transparent in those moments so we can all grow and gain level of understanding so yeah absolutely well if it's worth anything 
you are doing an incredible job at sharing your story and being open and vulnerable. And I can see your heart. I mean, you know, our listeners can't see this video, but it's just like, I'm just sitting here smiling, listening to you because you are so genuine. And it is just, it's so refreshing to hear and to see. If you could give one piece of advice to young POC musicians, I know that's kind of hard to narrow it down to one. That's kind of mean of me. (laughs) But anyway, what would it be? I've had so many conversations with people um, just about this. And, you know, it's a a difficult thing to navigate. Um, Being to walk in this world and the body that we do. No choice of our own. Um, And then to navigate all the other things that come with who we are, um, as well as the things that we have to do to make a living and live in this world. But beyond that, I would tell someone, don't wait for someone or something or an organization to notice you or hire you um, for you to build your own dreams. You can build your artistry and success by giving yourself over to your passions and making room for yourself um, to essentially break the silence, uh, break the, the, the cycle of, of non-opportunity and amplify your own voice and your own vision. Um, I think that's the only statement I could say that's truthful to my experience um, and all that I've shared today. I mean, it's the only way to move forward. It's the only way for you to be happy in doing what you're doing because, you know, meeting all those check boxes living life in this structured way that people are trying to tell you is the way towards success. Um, If anything, it's going to cause you more heartache and pain and a little bit more craziness. And trust me, as an artist, we're all a little crazy and I get it. But we need to give ourselves a chance to breathe and be happy and show a sign of content and, and, and feel this relaxed just a little bit by giving ourselves over to what makes us happy in the work that we do. Wow. Giving yourself that space. That is beautiful. Carl, thank you so much for talking with us today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Be kind to yourself and stay safe, everybody. See you next time.